Harriet Tubman is a remarkable figure in American history, and most of us have heard of her. She was born into slavery in the 1820s, but escaped to freedom in 1849. However, instead of simply securing her own freedom and sitting idly by, she dedicated her life to helping others escape the horrors of slavery. And she did this through a carefully planned and executed system known as the Underground Railroad. Tubman used a variety of strategies to escape being captured, such as traveling by night or following the North Star and using coded messages in song to communicate to those whom she was guiding to freedom. Her successful missions earned her the nickname of Moses. And through bravery, through her meticulous planning and dedication, she brought immense hope and freedom to her people. Tubman's selfless dedication toward this end was deeply rooted and embedded in her Christian faith. She saw how God planned to rescue and restore people in the scriptures and how he also used his people then to go rescue his people all across the world. And so it was this that motivated her. As God restored people, he would certainly use her to do the same. This in many ways then connects us to Zechariah 10 here this morning. Because as we see God's rescue plan unfold before our very eyes, we, like Harriet Tubman, are not meant to sit idly by, but like her, we are to tie in to the restoration plan of God from the beginning of time. We are to take action, for he plans to use us as his people to restore others to himself. So in seeing God's restoration plan here from Zechariah 10, we are inspired to join him on this great mission as he's given to us, the church. So this brings us to a crucial question that we must look at here this morning. What is God's restoration plan for humanity? Like if we're going to tie into this mission, what is it? What is he doing today? Our text in Zechariah 10 reveals to us at least three things that God is doing today to restore his people. He's restoring his people by replacing bad leadership. He's restoring his people by rescuing his people. And he's restoring his people by removing barriers and obstacles to their salvation. So if you haven't already, open up your Bibles then to Zechariah 10 as we look at this before us. And we begin begin then with God replacing Israel's bad leadership with good leadership. As we come to verse 1, there's a call from Zechariah to the people of God. And he cries out to them, trust the Lord to provide for you. Trust the Lord to provide for all of your physical needs once more. In light of the promise of the Messiah King that I just spoke of in chapter 9, just one chapter back, trust God. Look to him to provide rain for your crops and your fields. Look to him to provide for your physical needs while you wait for the promised King of God to deliver you. Don't turn to idols and diviners of other countries. Don't turn to these, but stay true to your God who will rescue you. 
And this is the gist of what he says in the first couple of verses. This reminder, though basic, was absolutely necessary for the people of Israel. Even though Israel knew that God provided for their needs, they still forgot so often as they went after the idols of other countries and nations around them. And so they were tempted not to seek life in their God, but the idols around them and the diviners. They were tempted to find their life in the world outside of God. And so just as negative peer pressure often causes people to do bad things, these people, God's people, were experiencing severe negative peer pressure from the foreign nations around them to again turn to these idols and away from God. This temptation was made all the worse because Israel at this time really did not have a shepherd as verse 2 tells us. They were instead like sheep without a shepherd to guide them or protect them. And as a result, they suffered affliction. Now, by saying that they were sheep without a shepherd, we are talking about the reality that Israel didn't have a king yet. In the Old Testament, being a shepherd was a common metaphor for a king. And so Israel didn't have the promised king of chapter 9 that we just talked about last week yet. They didn't have this shepherd king. And so Israel then is in a very fragile spot. However, while they didn't have a good shepherd to lead them, their own king, there were plenty of bad kings around them of other nations. That is, bad leaders who were willing to lead the people of Israel astray. And so we find that God's anger burns against these evil shepherds in verse 3. And so who are these guys that we're talking about? Well, commentators aren't exactly 100% sure, but it's likely that they were the foreign kings and nations surrounding Israel at this time. And this is supported as he calls them male goats in verse 3, or as our translations say, leaders. But they're, they're male goats. It's an insult. So while we don't know the exact identity of these foreign nations, God's anger burns against them because why? They're leading God's people astray. So whether it's Tyre or Sidon that we covered last week, or even Assyria and Egypt, as we'll see at the end of the text here, God's anger burns brightly against these people who are leading his own people away from himself. And so God will take action. He will take action to rescue his people. He will take on the form of a good shepherd, as our text says in verse 3, and he will tend his flock. He will protect and strengthen his people just as good shepherds did for their sheep. And as God takes on then this main role of shepherding his people, he will do several things. First, even as we saw last week with the coming of the Messiah, God would empower his people, verse 3 and 5. So we look at our text, as God takes leadership for his people, he will transform the house of Judah from these helpless sheep into a majestic, powerful steed. The house of Judah going from sheep to powerful war horses on the battlefield. And the people then will become like mighty warriors marching down the street, the battlefield. So God is empowering his people. They would no longer be helpless, but with his help, they would become mighty. But not only would God empower his people then, 
but he would also give them a better leader. They would give him the Messiah King, just promised a chapter before. And so it's here in this imagery of four different things that God will send them, which are the cornerstone, the tempeg, the battle bowl, and every ruler will go out from Judah together. So again, this is a picture of a better leader, better leadership that God is bringing to his people. Now, what exactly is meant by these four objects? What are we supposed to take away? First, as we look at the cornerstone, we, we realize that this is an image that we saw earlier on in Zechariah chapter 3. We have to go many weeks back for that. But as we do, the cornerstone was a crucial stone, right? In any house or building, it served as the foundation for that house to rest upon. Without it, the house would crumble, it would fall to pieces. And so this cornerstone would come out of Judah, and it would serve as the foundational stone for Judah. It would come out of Judah and be the foundational stone for the house of Judah. We also then see a tent peg come out of Judah. What is meant by this? But if you've ever gone camping and you've used a tent peg, you know that it holds the tent up, right? And if the shelter is going to remain standing, that tent peg has to be there to secure it in place. And so again, this leader coming out will secure Judah in the same way. And so this also then brings us to the battle bowl. The battle bowl was a weapon for war. But sometimes in this context, it was also symbolic for royal power in the ancient Near East. A strong bow leads to victory in battle, while a weak bow leads to defeat. And again, as this battle bow comes out of Judah, this this leader who wields it, he will lead his people to victory. And so in hearing these words, the promise of this new leader, this leadership that's coming to them, No doubt encouraging. No doubt encouraging at all. And while some of these words could perhaps describe Joshua and Zerubbabel back in chapters 4 and 5, God is ultimately pointing again to the Messiah King that would come out of the house of Judah. And of course, we know this person to be Jesus. For Jesus is the ultimate leader who would come out of Judah and rescue his people even as we covered last week. Jesus is the battle bull that would free his people from the forces of Satan, sin, and death. He would fire at the forces of hell, and he would conquer them. And he would even transform his helpless sheep into mighty warriors as they battle against these forces by depending on his name. And this is vividly seen even as we look at Luke 10, 17. For it's here as we see Jesus with his disciples empowering them. And they come to Jesus and they say, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, watch, I see Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing at all will harm you. So we see Jesus here, the promised leader, doing exactly this. As he transforms his sheep into mighty stallions, mighty warriors, as they look on him, the battle bull, for victory. And so Jesus is also then the tent 
peg. He supports the tent of Judah. And much like a tent peg, he is the cornerstone. And this is the predominant image that the New Testament loves to use about Jesus over and over and over again. He is the foundational stone not only for Judah, but for all people. So even as we sang this morning, I will build my life. We build our life on Jesus, the cornerstone, the one who is the ultimate leader, the battle bowl, the tent peg, and the foundational cornerstone. For even as the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.6, for it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so Jesus then is the one that is ultimately pictured here. He is the one that God would raise up as the new leader for his people. And so then for us here this morning, hearing this message, we have to ask ourselves a crucial question. Are we following this leader that Jesus has raised up to save us? Are we looking to the leadership of Jesus and his word to us today? Or are we like Israel looking to the false saviors of this world? Are we building our lives on the words of Jesus himself, found in his word? Or are we instead building our lives, again, on the idols that our, our world worships? Whether wealth, money, power, or the political rulers of our day and age, our ultimate hope as the church is not found in them, but it's found in him, in Jesus, our Messiah King. And so this morning, whether or not you've been following him well, or you've been following him poorly. Our calling as God's people again and again and again and again is to turn our eyes to our greatest leader revealed here. Turn our eyes to Jesus, the king over all. Make your life revolve around him more and more each and every day. Make it about Jesus in all things. For Jesus alone can truly restore us to be all that we should be. Only he can reverse the curse set forth in the garden. Only he can put together all the broken pieces in our lives. So we turn our eyes as we see Jesus as the king, as the promised one, the new leader over all. We look to him and we find restoration, salvation, and empowerment for the same mission. So in these opening verses then, God promises to restore his people. And one of the main ways he will do this is as he replaces these false bad leadership with the good leader who is Jesus Christ himself. But then God also plans to restore his people by rescuing them. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 10. Now in these opening verses, we've primarily focused on the house of Judah here. Maybe you don't pay attention to this, but it's all been about the house of Judah. But as we continue on, God doesn't only plan to rescue Judah, right? Keep, look at our text. Instead, he plans to strengthen the house of Judah for a purpose. Let's look at this. What's this purpose? Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. Joseph. 
God, after empowering Judah and raising up this new leader, is going to use the house of Judah here to rescue the house of Joseph. This is what is strongly implied here. So his desire isn't for just the house of Judah to be rescued and saved, but his desire extends beyond this one tribe of Israel to the rest of the lost tribes of Israel as represented by Joseph. And he plans to use Judah as a crucial part of that rescue mission for Joseph. Now, I think there's a rich gold mine here just being just waiting for us to uncover. And so we need to mine just a little bit here to draw out that gold. So bear with me here as we think on who Judah was and who Joseph was. And in doing this work, I think we're going to see Jesus all the more clearly. So who were Judah and Joseph? And how does it connect to the fact that Judah would one day rescue Joseph? Well, we need to begin in the beginning, right? We got to go back to the origin story of Judah and Joseph. And as we think about this story, we have to go back to the 12 sons of Jacob, right? They would collectively form the nation of Israel. And when we go back to this count, what do we remember about these 12 sons of Jacob? Did they like each other? Did they all get along just fine and dandy, you know, just best friends in the whole world? Uh, No, not at all. Because we know that 10 of these 12 sons hated Joseph passionately. And they hated him because he was their father's favorite child. And their father made this clear to all of them as he made him a beautiful coat of many colors. So what did they do? I'm assuming you know this story. But they took Joseph and they threw him into a waterless cistern or a pit, as we would call it. And then Judah, being the oldest child, would not lead his brothers to rescue Joseph from this waterless cistern. But instead, he would lead his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery for silver coins. Okay, think on that story again. This is what happens in a nutshell. But here in Zechariah, what do we see? We see a reversal of events as the house of Judah, many years later, would be strengthened by God to rescue Joseph out of this waterless cistern, out of this pit. God would raise one up from the house of Judah who would rescue Joseph instead of selling him out for silver coins. And ultimately, we see this again fulfilled in Jesus, our King. Because as we remember from chapter 9, just last week, Jesus would rescue his people from the waterless cistern. And he would do this. He would rescue them from the pit through the new covenant that he would make with God. And so Jesus of the house of Judah would rescue his people, rescue the house of Joseph from the waterless pit instead of selling them out like Judah of old did. And instead of selling out his people for silver coins as Judah did, Jesus himself would be sold for silver coins. And more than this, he would be put to death with his blood shed so that the house of Joseph and us could be redeemed. And so where we see the failings of old Judah, 
we see the successes of his future descendant, Jesus. He would succeed where we and so many others have failed. So this is the first connection that I want us to see. But then the second connection to Jesus comes again as we understand more of Judah and Joseph in Jesus's times. We have to go to the modern descendants of Jesus's time. And I'm about to greatly oversimplify here just to try to get to the point for us to see this. But as we again contemplate who Zechariah is and who he's talking to in this book, he's talking primarily to the Judahites. He's talking to the house of Judah along with some Benjaminites and Levites. The rest of the tribes were still scattered abroad in this context. However, the house of Joseph, along with a mixture of the other 10 tribes, were just north of Judah. These descendants of Joseph had intermarried with the Assyrian people after being conquered, right? After nearly being annihilated, they intermarried with the Assyrians. And so this tribe of Joseph, or Ephraim as we call them, were now Jewish Gentile people, okay? That's where they're at. They were no longer purely Jewish. And so when we come to the time of Jesus, who are the descendants of Joseph? They were the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the descendants of Joseph in a large extent. And what we do know is that the house of Judah despised and hated the house of Joseph. They hated the Samaritans with great hatred, as we know. There was great ethnic partiality across the board. And so rather than seeking to love this group of people and rescue them as Zechariah calls them to do, in 10.6, we see a heart of hatred by nearly all of the Judahites towards the Samaritan people. And this remained the case for many, many, many years until Jesus came on the scene, right? Jesus, who saw God's heart here in the scriptures for their lost long brothers, came and he loved the Samaritan people, even though it was unpopular, even though he would be ridiculed for it greatly. And so he'd reach out to the house of Joseph to redeem them. And in this, we see Jesus, the true house of Judah, rescuing their fallen brother, Joseph. And he does this as he speaks positively of the Samaritans and the story of the good Samaritan. And as he reaches out to the woman at the well. And speaking to the woman at the well, we see Jesus restoring this long lost tribe back to himself. And in John 4, 21 through 29, he speaks these powerful, incredible words to us. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then we go to John 4, 39 through 42. And now many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of what he said. 
And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. And so it's here, as we look at the life of Jesus, as we gaze upon him, that we really see him fulfilling this text. And as a result, there is immense joy. There's immense gladness and a declaration that he is the savior of the world. So again, as we look at this text, and we see the house of Judah being strengthened to save Joseph, so we again see Jesus in vivid color. There's then one more connection I want us to see between this text and Jesus in verses 8 through 10. And it relates to God and his sheep globally across the world. It's here in these verses that the redemption of God's people now extends beyond Joseph to people everywhere. And again, I want to be clear, I believe this includes the Gentiles that were again referenced just a chapter ago, the Philistines being saved and made like a tribe of Judah. And so as God whistle in verse 8, as shepherds do for their sheep to come to them himself, so we again see Jesus, the God-man, rescuing his lost sheep in similar fashion. For as Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And again, as we see God shepherding his people and calling them to himself, think of John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So as we look again at Zechariah 10, 8 through 10, we see this ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the God-man. For he's gathering his lost sheep that have been scattered abroad throughout the world. He whistles and they come to him because they know his voice. And so these verses point us to Jesus, the God-shepherd. This redemption would be so great then that not even the land of Gilead or Lebanon, which was typically a desolate place with tons of room, even that land wouldn't be able to contain the amount of people that he would redeem. And so again, as we look at this text before us, it's like a big flashing arrow pointing to Jesus and saying, this is him. This is the Messiah promised long ago. Look to him. He is the leader. He is the one who will rescue you. And so we glory this morning in Jesus with great joy and zeal. But not only then are we to glory and wonder and awe, but in seeing this rescue mission from Jesus, we are to join him on it. We, like Jesus, are now meant to go forth and bring this message of redemption and restoration to all people. And I think this is, again, what verse 9 strongly alludes to. God has scattered his people. He's sown them intentionally in all the nations abroad. And he's done this 
so that they too might lead others home to the fold. So Resurrection Church, as we see God's mission unfolded here before our eyes, he calls us to the same mission and commission. Our mission is to help people find their truest home, which is not of this earth, but their truest home is in the arms of our loving God who did not spare his son, but willingly gave him up for all of us. So then we need to ask ourselves the question, who is it that God has called me to reach out to? What lost sheep is he wanting to rescue through me? Is there a neighbor, a coworker, or a friend that God would have you reach out to in love and to share King Jesus with them? If we are to join Jesus in this rescue mission, we must become like him. We must initiate by moving toward people, even as Jesus came from heaven to earth to rescue us. And so even as he showed love, even to the most unlovely, those whom it was unpopular to do so, so we must do the same, even if it means we get rejected. So in our families then, in our home groups, in our church, Let's take pains then to be moving forward towards people, not away, but towards them in love. For God's heart and desire is to use you, to use us, the church, to reach the lost sheep with the message of Jesus. And so even as Harriet Tubman saw this in the scriptures, and she would risk great things to rescue her people, so we must too be willing to do the same. So as we've contemplated this text, as we've seen God's plan to restore his people through replacing their leadership, through rescuing them from captivity, we finally see that he will restore his people as he removes every obstacle in their way. Let's look at these final verses here together, 11 and 12. How would he remove every obstacle in their way? God would pass through the sea of distress and he would strike the waves of the sea. Now, while there is an exact agreement among commentators, the basic idea of what's taking place here is pretty similar with some variation. And what God is saying here to his people is that just like the Israelites of old who would pass through the sea of distress, the Red Sea, so his people today would pass through the sea of distress. God would strike the waters. He would part them just as he did for Moses. And he would do this so his people could go through a seemingly impossible barrier. He would act miraculously to save his people from the Egyptians. And so as this is brought up before us again, God is saying he will remove any obstacle in his way of saving his people. Just as he did this for Moses on the sea, so he does this for us today. So he will remove obstacles just as he did for Moses, and he will remove obstacles as he humbles the enemies of God here. It's here that we find that God would humble Assyria and Egypt. And it's significant as both of these foreign nations took God's people into slavery and bondage. We read about it just this morning. 
But God is saying here that he would bring them to their knees. The life-giving water of the Nile that Egypt trusted in would dry up completely, and the scepter of power they wielded broken. The once great Assyrian empire would crumble and fall, and God's people would be strengthened in the face of their former captors. And so because God is removing every obstacle for his people's salvation, so we too here this morning can find great comfort, great comfort in at least two ways. We can take comfort in the true reality that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God. He will deliver his people and he will remove any obstacle in the way. For even as Romans 8, 37 through 39 tells us, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God will remove all barriers when it comes to saving his people. So we can take this to the bank and we can rest in the salvation the Lord provides for his people. For he loves you and nothing will stand in his way of delivering you safely to the other side. Second then, we can ask God to remove obstacles keeping people from Christ. Just as God could remove these obstacles to save his people, so he can do the same for the people around you. And if we believe this to be true, we must be praying so much more than we do. We must be fervently asking our God to remove the obstacles of salvation for the people all around us. And so if you are not already, I challenge you, I challenge you to be praying for just one person this week. One person that God would draw to himself. One person that God would remove the obstacles keeping that person from knowing Jesus as their king. For the same God that acted for Moses is acting for us here today. He is restoring his people by giving them a new leader, King Jesus And he is rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of light, as Colossians tells us. And he is removing every obstacle that stands in their way. So with this great hope, let us as the people of God here this morning worship Jesus. Let us worship him who is our hope and salvation in all these things. For he alone can save deliver. Father, we come before you this morning, and as we have looked upon the face of Jesus, may we become like him. May our love deepen greatly for our Savior, and as we've seen your plan unfold from the beginning of time in wondrous ways this morning, help us to glory in Christ and to capture his heart for people, and then to go and rescue your sheep. So use us as your church to glorify you in this way as we follow after Jesus and go after your sheep.
May we do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.